Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In the 2006 Herschel Lecture, Professor Brian Warner from the University of Cape Town in South Africa explores the life of John Herschel, described as the first modern scientist and the son of Bath's famous astronomer, William Herschel. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the joint lecture of the William Herschel Society and the uh, University of Bath. Uh, many people know me. I, I'm Peter Ford, and I have the... Uh, honour of being uh, associated with, with both institutions, the William Herschel Society uh, and the Physics Department of the University of Bath. And, uh, tonight we have a, a, a great pleasure uh, in having Brian Warner here uh, from the University of Cape Town uh, in uh, South Africa. Um, Brian, in fact, was, he told me, head of the department uh, at the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department for, for 33 years, and he's now got uh, time off as an emeritus professor uh, after that uh, splendid effort. He uh, actually comes from East Grinstead and developed an uh, interest in astronomy and uh, read a few books of Patrick Moore. And then someone said, that, did he know that Patrick Moore lived at the time about two miles from East Grinstead? And he was introduced to Patrick Moore. And, and Patrick Moore, uh, I think, was influential in... in uh, 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 Brian's development, although Brian did uh, uh, most of it on himself, because he, he went to University College in London and obtained his uh, BSc and PhD, and he went to Oxford and then came out at the Radcliffe Fellow at Pretoria uh, in uh, the Transvaal, and uh, he was also at Austin in Texas uh, for five years before coming to uh, the University of Cape Town, as I say, in 1972. Uh, as head of department. Uh, for me, it's a great pleasure I, to, to know him. I, I've known Brian for quite a few years. Most of the 1980s, I was at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, and in those days, we always looked forward for, when we were up in the Transvaal to come down to the Cape to, in a sense, chill out. <laughs> and the University of Cape Town was an extremely nice university. It still is a very beautiful university. And uh, we actually had one of the most uh, uh, pleasant and friendly physics departments of any place I've come across. So, Brian, it's very nice to see you here. Uh, Brian did lecture here, we think, about uh, 12 or 13 years ago, but not in this lecture theatre, which probably wasn't uh, built at that time. And he's going to talk very appropriately about the son of William Herschel, who is John Herschel. So, Brian, please, uh, very nice to see you. Let's uh, take over. Thank you very much. I'm sort of in a strange position here because it's rather like carrying coals to Newcastle or, to go back 2,000 years, owls to Athens. Uh, to bring Herschel's to Bath uh, seems rather pretentious or presumptuous of me. But I have made a fairly detailed study of John Herschel's life. Uh, in fact, I feel I've been reliving it for him for the last 30 years. And, and uh, a great joy it's been. I'm constantly in awe of John Frederick William Herschel and what he was able to accomplish in his time and what he got up to and I'm going to show you some of this this evening. Um, the emphasis will be less on the science and more on his other talents because he was one of the most extraordinary all-round human beings that I've ever uh, come into sort of contact with even if it's 150 years after the event. Now, let me start at the beginning and tell you some things that I'm, I'm sure you already know. 
And uh, I want to start the, the earlier generation with your William of Bath, um, about whom I know far less because I haven't studied him. But as you know, William Herschel was born in 1738 in Hanover, and at the age of about 18, um, he left Hanover and came to England because he was a musician, like his father, in a military band. And that was all right until war broke out and bullets flying around the ears of an oboist and, uh, are not appreciated. So he left and came here. It wasn't his first visit to England. And you may well remember that, that uh, George, the, I forget if it was the second or third at that time, um, was both King of England and Elector of Hanover. So in a sense, they were one and the same country. Uh, it was easy to move from one to the other. And William came and plied his trade as a musician, starting at the bottom, just copying manuscript material, and built up uh, a, a, a reputation as a musician, performer, composer, um, and eventually ended up here in Bath, uh, first in the Octagon Chapel as organist and then <coughs> as um, director of the, uh, the Bath Orchestra. Uh, you know all that, so I'm not going to tell you any of that. Um, but during this time, and through a rather odd twist of fate, because he had been very influenced in his uh, theory of harmony by a book by a Dr. Smith, who I think was a physicist, not a musician, a, a, um, a Dr. Smith who wrote a book uh, on harmony, and William Herschel was very impressed with this. And it so happened that Smith had also written a book on optics. That's why I say I think he was a, phys a physicist. And William was so impressed with the, um, the book on harmonics that he decided to buy the book on optics and from that developed his interest in telescopes and astronomy. So it's one of those little twists of fate. If Smith had not been an all-round physicist, we probably wouldn't have had William Herschel as a pioneer um, and brilliant astronomer. <clears throat> now, as again, you know, here in Bath, 1781, uh, he discovered the planet Uranus while doing a survey of the sky. And surveys of the sky are going to figure quite prominently in this talk. Um, and as a result of finding a planet, the first person known to discover a planet, because prior to that the planets had been known since antiquity, um, he was elevated to the king's astronomer, the, the royal astronomer, not the royal astronomer royal, royal astronomer, and uh, in a, a great gesture of uh, scientific funding in those days, George III, by now, um, funded the great 40-foot telescope, which was the big science project of its day in the 18th century in Britain. And it's true that William actually didn't use it a great deal um, for finding things. It, it was a rather clumsy telescope, um, but nevertheless, it was the pride of, of British science in those days. More important to him was the 20-foot telescope that he had built prior to this and with which he then studied the whole northern sky. So the 20-foot telescope, this one, um, which is shown at Observatory House in Slough, and this actually is drawn by John Herschel, who we'll come to in just a moment. Um, this was the telescope that William used to survey the northern sky and John, as you'll see in a moment, used extensively. And it's the telescope, more or less the telescope, that went to Cape Town, which is where my interest in John Herschel first started 
in seeing what he did at the Cape. So William had shifted from being a musician to being an astronomer. And up until he was just over 50 years old, he had not married. You will know again, being in Bath, that his sister Caroline assisted him a great deal in all of his music and then astronomy. She was an impressive all-rounder in her own right. But eventually, um, William married, and he married Mary Pitt, who was the widow um, of Mr. Pitt. I can't remember his first name, but the Pitts had been great friends of William Herschel. And when Mr. Pitt died uh, after a suitable interval, um, William married her, and she was quite rich. So he had waited 52 years before marrying a rich widow. Um, I'm not... uh, I mean, it may be a good thing... Um, But it did mean that William was not short of money ever again in his life. And he also earned a great deal of money making telescopes. Now, they had one child. um, And that's where we really begin this evening's talk. John Frederick William Herschel, the one child of William and Mary. He was born in 1792. So William, by that time, was 54. It's quite late to start a family. Um, sufficiently late that there wasn't another child. Uh, And uh, John, as we'll see, was a chip off the same block. But he started with huge advantages. He had an infinite range of opportunities, which he made good use of, unlike his father, who, coming out of the Hanoverian foot guard band or whatever it was, really had only had a family education and no proper formal education. But clearly... Growing up in this rather strange family where his father and his aunt worked all night and slept all day, um, that must have been difficult for a young child keeping quiet in the daytime. Um, And with a a father and an aunt who were scientists uh, promoting, obviously, John's interest in science, he had that advantage to start with uh, in his uh, life, which William had never had. So they sent him um, briefly off to... Eton, I think. He was either Eton or Harrow. But Mama took him out of there quite soon because he hadn't been there very long before in visiting him she found him having a fight with a, um, a, a boy much bigger than him and winning. And that seems to be the problem. Um, the, it wasn't she took him away because she's frightened of him getting hurt. I think she took him away because he was getting into bad habits. And so he was brought up uh, with private tuition and was extremely fortunate in having a a, a private tutor who was himself a good mathematician and spotted the talent that John had uh, in mathematics. And so at the appropriate time, in his late teens, John was entered into Cambridge University. Um, And as an undergraduate in St John's College, Cambridge, John excelled in a way that was pretty remarkable. Um, He not only, as you might expect, won all of the science prizes as he went along, but he had the reputation of being the best classics student they'd had for many a a generation. So when he finally graduated at at, at age 21, um, he not only came out as the leading science graduate, and let me explain that what happened in those days, everybody took the Tripos exam. Um, Many went out uh, in the oi polloi, as they were called. These were people who had that education and had done a lot of mathematics. The mathematics was there to 
give you a sense of logical development, which was thought correctly, uh, to be the basis of most good arguments. So whether the students were to become lawyers or, or men of the church or scientists, the word hardly even existed then, um, or what, the tripos was a good foundation. It taught you to think logically and to use your mind. And a great deal of it, of course, was um, uh, Latin and Greek as well. I mean, it was classics that they were being taught. John not only came top in the final exam, um, which few people actually took, and in particular, it's worth noting that um, one of John Herschel's close friends and brilliant mathematician um, was Charles Babbage, now known as the founder of computers, mechanical computers, brilliant mathematician. He did not even enter the final exam, the exam called a wrangling, where you competed with fellow students to, get, to become senior wrangler. It was the final grading, and it's said that when John Herschel went and looked at the, uh, the list of students, he couldn't find his own name on it, and it was because he was so far up above the rest and hadn't realised it um, that he overlooked himself at the first at first. And, but Babbage actually didn't even bother to compete. He knew that he wasn't in John Herschel's class of, com of competition. Now, so John came out as senior wrangler, huge honour. He also then entered the Smiths for the Smiths Prize, which was a mathematics dissertation kind of prize, and he won that too. And not always did the senior wrangler win the Smiths Prize. It meant John really was the best mathematician uh, of his year uh, and, and of some years. But while all this was going on, there was another thing going on. Herschel and Babbage and five or six others started what they called the Analytical Society at the university in Cambridge. And this was, I think, unique in the history of universities. They were disturbed by the way the university was teaching mathematics at the time. The university had not forgotten the fact that Isaac Newton had been one of their members and they stuck to his uh, type of mathematics. They were teaching around 1810, 1812 still, um, they were teaching mathematics in the same way that Newton had uh, written and used mathematics. In other words, they were, they were using fluxions um, and, 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 and dots instead of uh, dots for uh, differentials. Uh, whereas on the continent, people were using effectively what Leibniz had independently invented for the calculus. And what John Herschel and his colleagues in the Analytical Society realised was that the Cambridge method of teaching was um, clumsy and, and in fact was opaque. It was difficult for students to learn that type of mathematical notation and methodology. And so they started a revolution in teaching at Cambridge. John Herschel um, uh, translated one of the French textbooks on calculus. He computed uh, or he, he, he um, made a large collection of examples done in the continental method and published a book on that. Um, and that, and he influenced, they, the little analytical society influenced the examiners who were to write the exams, make up the exams and examine them, and they succeeded in getting this um, noble ancient university to change its method of teaching mathematics completely. And these were undergraduates that did that. I don't know of a parallel example anywhere in the world. It shows John's brilliance. 
It shows uh, the, the, the kind of uh, brilliant students that he was mixing with, and he was looked on as the leader, mathematically, scientifically, of that group. So, a good start in life. <clears throat> and I'm going to take him from there, um, but during my talk I'm going to show you quite a lot of John Herschel's artwork. I've talked about mathematics and science, I'll give you a bit more of that later, but he was a very, very fine artist, which is not all that common in scientists these days, but was not uncommon in the 19th century. Um, so let me just give you a bit of background to John's art work. There are a few uh, drawings, paintings, watercolours he did when he was a teenager, but very few left. But as you'll see, as a mature man, he produced a, a vast corpus of artwork. Now, as a scientist, he was attracted by the idea of um, art being scientifically accurate in a certain sense. And so he was um, enthusiastic to employ a device that was known as a camera lucider. The camera lucider was invented by William Wollaston, who was a great friend of William Herschel, John's father. And in fact, we know that Wollaston gave John, while he was still a teenager, a, um, an example, a, a, a camera lucida that Wollaston himself had made. So I need to explain very simply or briefly the working of a camera lucida. The principle is shown here. Um, the first thing to, to, that you will be probably familiar with is if you just take a simple sheet of glass, tilt it at an angle and look down through it, you see two things. You can see through the glass down to whatever's down here, which may be a sketchbook with your hand and a pencil in it, and you also get a reflection from whatever's over here. So you see two images superimposed. You see your hand and a sketchbook, and you see perhaps a landscape coming in. You see that in a window of a shop. You can see usually the road behind you reflected off the front surface, and you can see through the shop window <clears throat> into the, the goods that are on display. Now, the problem with this is, though, that because there's one reflection, the image of the landscape is reversed left to right, and so what you're looking at doesn't look normal. <coughs> so clearly, <clears throat> a simple trick is to have two reflections. So you could have a reflection off of a mirror and then look through the, um, the plain piece of glass, <clears throat> and that would work. But you've got two reflections, one from this mirror and one from that surface, and so the landscape or the person sitting over here whose portrait you're drawing is a very weak image. It's very poorly illuminated. So what Wollaston realised was, let's make both of those reflections internal reflections inside a prism because these reflections are 100% efficient. And so you don't lose any light in that process. So he invented this prism, which is known as a Wollaston prism, and the way that you use it for drawing is that you put your eye over the edge of this prism and half of the pupil of the eye is looking at your sketchbook and, and drawing hand and the other half of the eye <clears throat> is seeing the, the image you're sketching. Now, a camera obscura had been around for an enormous length of time, since probably classical times. It's just a hole in a wall projecting an image uh, onto the inside of a a room is an example of a camera obscura. If you put a lens in the hole, it's uh, more efficient. 
Camera obscura means a dark room. You need a dark room for that. Camera lucida, as Wollaston called it, um, is quite different because you can use this in the open air. And in a sense, your eye, the eyeball, is the camera obscura. The two images are on the retina <clears throat> inside your, your eye, and so this can be used in the, in the daytime. Now, a very convenient <clears throat> uh, instrument to use. I've got a couple of pictures which show... Uh, first, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica in the mid-19th century, uh, showing what the actual instrument looks like. <clears throat> and it's simply the, the, the Wollaston prism is up here, supported on an arm <clears throat> with a clamp that you can clamp to your sketchbook. In this case, a book with a piece of paper on it. So very lightweight, very simple. And in use, John Herschel would have looked like this when he was using it. <clears throat> okay, a lightweight stool, a lightweight sketching table, and the instrument at the top there. Very convenient. Camera, lucider, you can put on your inside pocket um, and uh, carry it around. And I think John Herschel was hardly ever without that as, a, as an instrument, as you'll, you'll see as we go on. Okay, so John was skilled quite quickly at using this particular device. I'll show you a few examples. Um, first, of course, he travelled around in England quite a bit. One of his many interests was geology, so many of his early camera lucider sketches are of geological features. Um, I'm not going to bother you with those, they're not terribly exciting. <clears throat> but one of the more extraordinary pictures is this one. This is the bridge over the Menai Straits. And I've seen the original. It was actually in a museum in Baltimore when I saw it. <clears throat> and with a magnifying glass, you can look at... Uh, this needs to be focused a bit, please, at the back there. Um, through, that's, yeah, that's good. In the magnifying glass, you can look at the way these support cables converge and diverge. And it's a revelation, at least it is to me, because I'm not artistic. Um, there is no sign of any wobble. Everything converges uniformly and diverges again. There's no sign of rubbing out in any of John Herschel's pictures. Um, for me, this is an example of the ultimate in eye, brain, hand, coordination. Whatever he saw, he could draw precisely and first attempt, no second attempts. Uh, I, I, one day I must get a blow-up of this because, uh, and just show, you, show uh, how steady his hand was. This is a characteristic of all of his drawings. So I've looked at many of them under magnifying glasses. So that's just an example. So there was John, having graduated from Cambridge um, in uh, 1812, I think, when he was 20 years old. Um, he was, had already a fantastic reputation for being a good all-round undergraduate student. But he was doing more than that. He, he had helped to change Cambridge's way of teaching mathematics. He had himself done some very significant mathematics and he was already publishing significant papers. The result was that at the age of 21, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of London, which is an extremely unusual age in any century for somebody to get that far so quickly. Um, so he was a renowned mathematician. Um, that enabled him to get a fellowship at St John's College, his college in Cambridge, and he set off on a career of research uh, at Cambridge. And over the next few years, he 
more than dabbled in. He did fundamental research in chemistry, optics, physics, um, virtually all the areas of, uh, of natural science. And uh, I will mention a few of the results later on. Uh, but it's my belief that if he had not been called away from Cambridge by his father, John Herschel would probably have had a reputation uh, as, as good or as famous as Faraday. After all, we all remember Faraday, but most people have forgotten about John Herschel. <clears throat> and I think that's because in, 19, in 1817, when John had been a fellow for about five years at, at Cambridge, William, who was now getting old, um, said to John, come back home, son, and join the family business. The family business being looking at the sky. Because John actually had not done any astronomy to this point. He had written lots of papers, as I say, in, in chemistry, and I will come back towards the end of my talk about the significance of one or two of these. He was an all-round scientist um, <laughs> writing important uh, uh, research papers, um, and, uh, but not really doing astronomy. So in 1817, William said to him, come home, and John abandoned, more or less, his career as a general scientist <clears throat> and was trained by his father to be an observational astronomer. Now, of course, he had the advantage, though, of having this tremendous theoretical underpinning, which his dad had never had. So John potentially was going to be a greater astronomer even than his father. Okay, so 1817, John goes back to Slough. His father teaches him how to make telescope mirrors. Um, they both cast a new mirror for that 20-foot telescope, uh, and under William's tuition, John ground it and polished it and made a good mirror. Uh, he then made one entirely on his own. So there were three mirrors for that telescope, the one that William had made, one that William and John together had made, one that John had made. They all three still exist, and I'll show you one right at the end of this. Um, now, eventually his father died, 1822, and John then was on his own, <clears throat> but as an observing astronomer back in Slough. And over the 10 or so, 12 years from 1817, when he went back to Slough to about 1829, 1830, um, he repeated his father's entire survey of the Northern Hemisphere. That's often overlooked. One thinks of William doing the North, John doing the South. But in fact, John repeated the entire survey of the North using the 20-foot reflector and found 800 nebulae galaxies that his father had overlooked. Um, now, John had enormous respect for his father, so uh, I can assert that John's eyesight was perhaps a little better as a younger man then than William, because William only started serious observing in his 50s. Um, I, I, I can assert that I think John's eyesight was actually better, and he could see a bit fainter than his dad. It's even possible that his mirrors that he made were better than his father's. And his father's, without doubt, were the best in the world in their day. Now, it's, this is not my opinion I'm giving. It's actually that of Agnes Clark, who wrote this kind of thing back in the 1890s. She had assessed what John had done, and in her assessment, she thought he was actually a little bit better even than his dad. John would never have agreed with that. But uh, I think, you know, retrospectively, we can um, think that that was the case. Now, during these early 1820s, John himself had not yet got married. Um, but 
he eventually proposed to the sister of one of his old Cambridge friends, Cambridge chums. And the engagement was announced, the engagement was honoured, but then John changed his mind. In the early 19th century, to break an engagement was, I mean, at least a terrible social faux pas. It, it was dreadful. It was, you know, really not heard of. And the Herschel family, William by now died, but his mother was still alive. Mary Herschel was still alive. They were deeply embarrassed. And so, in great shame, John Herschel was sent away from home. Now, that wasn't such a bad thing because he went on the grand tour of Europe. Strictly, the famous grand tours had ended more or less at the end of the, 19th, uh, uh, the 18th century, by 1800, say. So here was John going in the early 1820s on a grand tour of Europe. No bad thing because he went armed with letters of introduction to all the top scientists, astronomers in the whole of Europe. And he was such a good linguist, remember he was top scholar in Greek and Latin, um, that he quickly picked up German, which he probably got at home anyway, French, Italian. And so he was a a very um, easy travelled grand tour person. And he spent many months, in fact, he went with Charles Babbage, I think, on the first tour. And he took his camera lucider with him. And i just quickly show you one or two of these, um, of his sketches. From that, you might deduce that John Herschel could have been quite a good architect if he'd wished. I won't bother to tell you where these are. Now, this is important because this is a typical Herschel technique. Notice that the most detail and the most care has been put into the background and the foreground is deliberately left empty, unfinished. He wants you to look up there and not at a cluttered foreground. Most of his pictures have that property, certainly many, more than half of them. And now the detail here, this is pencil, um, and he typically used pencil and maybe charcoal for a bit of darker stuff, but the detail there is photographic. It's virtually photographic. Here's another one with the same technique. And you can see as you go into the distance here, his technique changes, so you get the the impression of distant, slightly foggy, hazy thing. And the foreground, not uh, covered. So he built up quite a portfolio of these beautiful drawings uh, on the Grand Tour of Europe. He came home um, and uh, remained unmarried for a couple of years. His mother now was beginning seriously to worry about John and she introduced him to the daughter of her lawyer, and they were engaged. And then John got cold feet again. Now, there is evidence that at this time, the father of the disappointed lady challenged John Herschel to a duel. Whether guns or sword, I don't know, but I think there was a duel threatened. Um, And it was... Mrs. Babbage, Charles Babbage's mother, who acted as an intermediary and sorted things out, I have a suspicion that a fair bit of money may have changed hands. And John again was sent on the grand tour by his mother. So a second grand tour, revisiting all these places. Um, I think I may have another picture. Yes, here you are. Here he is um, in Sicily. This is actually the first grand tour in 1824. The second one was in 1826. Haven't quite got these in the right order. Um, But there he is travelling around Europe again. Uh, Now, this is one of my favourite pictures. This is Antwerp Cathedral that um, he did 
Uh, there's not a date on it. Um, and again, this is the extreme of this sort of inversion of normal uh, artistry. The greatest detail is in the background, is in the, the cathedral spire. Uh, and if you look at it under a magnifying glass, it is like a miniature. He was a great miniaturist. The foreground, though, is just the buildings are just blocks. They're geometric blocks. I stood in that street about four years ago and looked at that scene, and it's more or less the same now as it was when John did that in the 1820s. But that's the most extreme example of uh, the Herschel technique of, of making you look at what he wants you to look at and uh, not allowing you to, to uh, be diverted by the foreground stuff. You'll see that uh, frequently in the later pictures. Okay, so there he was, second uh, tour. Um, back home again, still not married, late 1820s. And at this point, one of his old college friends from Cambridge was getting very disturbed. John was sort of becoming a, uh, a solitary um, scientist, looking inwards, uh, living in London on his own. And John Graham, his good friend, um, thought we'd better do something about this. So he introduced him to a family, a Scottish family, uh, then living in London. And uh, we, sort of people that work on this subject, think that probably Graham had in mind that Herschel might marry the widow um, who, who was living there. But no, he fell in love with the daughter, or one of the daughters instead. And they were finally married. Uh, John was married in 1829. And I have one or two pictures to show you. This is the wedding uh, photograph, in a sense. The, the original of this is a miniature um, medallion painted by the leading miniature portraitist, portraitist of the time, Frederick Chalon. Um, and when you see individual little streaks in here, those are streaks from a single hair in the, in the, um, in the brush. They're not painted with the full brush. Now, the thing about this is that John Herschel at this time, 1829, was 37, coming on 38 years old. And those, that curly hair does not look like the curly hair of a 38-year-old. And what has happened here is that I think the artist has deliberately brought John's appearance down in age because the girl he was marrying was 20 years younger than him. she just turned 18. And she looks a very mature 18. And I think the artist has brought their ages as close together in appearance as he could manage. So Margaret Brodie Stewart, who he married, who became Margaret Brodie Herschel, um, as I say, was a, one of the daughters uh, and... Uh, she had many elder brothers who had more or less brought her up after their father had died. And it was a fantastically sex successful marriage, one of the great marriages in, uh, in science, certainly, and maybe in, in, in human history. Despite their difference in age, they had so much overlap. Herschel, I hadn't mentioned, not surprisingly, John was a fine musician. He learned all that from his father. Um, there are, for instance, in his diaries times when he draws some musical staves and notates a bird song he just heard. Uh, I haven't tested it yet. I want to see if he had absolute pitch, but I'm pretty sure he would have done. Um, and I want to um, compare one or two of these bird song notations with the original, well, with, with the modern bird to see if it's at the same pitch. But he clearly could do that. He could, he could simply notate anything. And he played piano, um, played uh, flute, and Margaret did too. One of the letters he wrote to his uh, mother 
when he was uh, sort of asking permission to get engaged to this lady, um, he was praising how well she sang Mozart and how beautifully she played on the piano. So there was an overlap there among all the other things as well. So, 1829, they get married, and they go on honeymoon. And there are two interesting aspects to this. The first one, I think, yeah, is coming up. Um, They went for about six weeks on honeymoon touring around England. And this is a drawing that John made in Leamington Spa, out of the bedroom, showing the view out of the bedroom. Well, so what, you say? That's no surprise. But when you turn this over, this particular picture over, It won't show very well on the next slide, but it's there. There is a sketch of how a camera lucida works. So there is John on honeymoon with his bride giving a lecture on on optics (laughs) to his wife. Why is that? Well, she undoubtedly was watching him draw this picture out through the window and wanted to know more about the camera lucida. How does it work, dear? And he explained it to her. However, it didn't help because in the pictures, you'll see one or two later in my talk, Margaret uh, ended up doing a great deal of artwork in South Africa at the Cape, but she never used the camera lucida. Now, why was that? Well, the fact is that when you use a camera lucida, you remember I said you have to keep your eye still and half of it looks down the side of the prism and the other half looks through the reflection through the prism. Keeping your eye absolutely still is, is necessary because if you let the pupil move one side or the other, one of the images goes dark and the other one gets bright and whatever. And it causes intense headaches, migraines, in people who can't do that. And we suspect that Margaret wasn't able to do it any more than I'm able to do it. I've used, tried to use one of these camera lucidus. So the great majority, of, well, I don't know about the great majority, but a lot of people couldn't use it. It, it was too painful. A lot of artists used it and never let on that they were using a camera lucida. Uh, modern David Hockney has written a whole book on this. He uses that type of camera lucida when he does portraits. He does beautiful portraits and he uses the classical camera lucida. And he's looked into the history of the use of optical devices by great artists over the last many centuries. He's got a whole thick book on this, which I got some years ago. Um, and he is convinced because he can see the way an artist works and what the artist must have done to get those effects. And apparently the use of optical devices was far more common uh, than, uh, than generally realised. Somebody like John Ruskin, though, was, was uh, uh, totally against the idea of artificial aid of that sort. Now, I should say that it may sound like cheating, but a camera lucida is no use to you if you're not a good artist. An analogy would be say, giving a beautiful Stradivarius violin to somebody who is tone deaf and say, make nice music with it. The camera lucida helps you to get the perspective correct and all the profiles of mountain ranges or whatever. But you can't draw fine art with a camera lucida if you are not yourself a fine artist. Um, and, and, and I like to make that point because John clearly was using it in order to get the most accurate pictures he could, but the artistry was entirely his own input. Right, so they toured England for six weeks, and John uh, made drawings all around. Uh, Margaret kept a diary, which has never been published. And then what did they do? They toured Europe on a third grand tour for John. Now, whether he told her that he'd been on two previous grand tours and why he had, we don't know. (laughs) 
Um, but the fact is that Margaret had probably the best tour guide of, of that time of the century. He spoke all the languages. He knew all the people. He'd been there before. He knew what was beautiful and what was to be avoided. And Margaret, in her diary, frequently says, John has gone off with his camera lucida to do a drawing. There's no indication at all during that period that she herself did any artwork. You'll see a little bit later that, uh, nevertheless, she was a very good artist. All right. Now, as I said, John had, up until the time of his marriage, completed a survey of the northern sky, cataloguing all the interesting objects, what we often like to call the zoo of interesting astronomical objects. And he wanted um, to go and complete his study by going to the southern hemisphere and look at the southern sky. Without doubt, his father would have done that if he'd started earlier in life, but William was too old to go. John was keen on going, um, and around about 1830, uh, he started to inquire of the possibility of going to the southern hemisphere. But his mother at that time was getting old and she was weak, and he actually waited until she didn't need him anymore. In other words, she died before he then seriously looked at moving to the Southern Hemisphere. Now, at that time when he did that, which was the end of 1833, and at about this time, um, I think it is 1833, this portrait was done of him. This is an oil done by one of the great portrait painters of the time by the name of Pickersgill, and this is in St. John's College, Cambridge, the original which is colour, uh, not, not bright colour, but uh, is, is a little more exciting than this picture. So that's what John really looked like, uh, not with all the curly hair from four years earlier, um, but a, a much more mature-looking person. And um, his wife, commenting on this, said that it was an excellent portrait of him. Uh, she added, because she was talking two or three years later when he, he'd been at the Cape, uh, she said, but he, but he looks a bit too serious and he, he smiles and laughs a lot these days at the Cape, away from all the um, other problems. So, end of 1833, he sets off for the Southern Hemisphere to do the Southern Sky. Uh, what was possible was he might have gone to St. Helena or Ascension in the South Atlantic, but those islands have very bad cloud. Uh, Edmund Halley had observed in St. Helena in the 17th century and found it a very cloudy place. They might have gone off all the way to um, Tasmania, uh, Van Diemen's Land as it still was, or to the young um, Sydney, Botany Bay as it had been. But those were about seven, eight months' voyage. So they chose the Cape for two reasons. One is the Cape was only two months' voyage away um, and the other was that there was an observatory already established there. I think that's what's next. Um, uh, recently established, uh, this is John's drawing of it, which he made much later after uh, he'd arrived, but this observatory had been established in 1828, so only six years, five years earlier, and there was a new director going to the observatory uh, from England, Thomas McClear. John Herschel knew him, liked him, trusted him, and knew that they could work together very well uh, at the observatory there. So I think the main draw for going to the Cape uh, of Good Hope was the existence of this professional working observatory. Because John, remember, was in essence an amateur. He wasn't a salaried professional astronomer. So they all went off. Um, the McClears originally wanted to travel with the Herschels, found it too expensive. But they arrived 
at the beginning of 1834, the two families in two separate ships um, and, and worked together for the next four years. Now, <clears throat> when John got there, of course, he had, and he had taken that 20-foot telescope with him. It wasn't really the same telescope in the sense that it had been built 50 years earlier by William and it had been out in the rain and the weather for 50 years. So all the woodwork, except the tube, was really rotten. So John replaced all the woodwork, all the spars, the ladders, the ropes, whatever, kept the original ironwork, which is what William had had made by blacksmith, uh, and took the tube. So it, it wasn't quite the original telescope, but it was the, you know, the, th- the same three mirrors that William had used um, and the same tube, but the rest had been refurbished. When he got to Cape Town, um, John first rented and then purchased a really rather large estate. This is John's own sketch of the estate. You, you won't be able to read it back there, but the manor house is here in the middle, and there was an orchard here, and it says orchard, and it says 20-foot reflector. That's where he put the telescope. There was another small telescope next to it, a refract, small refractor. And this is only the centre of the estate. This is about a kilometre from top to bottom here. And I, these days, live just down here, uh, just off of this bottom road. Um, so it was a very large estate. He rented it, and then the man who owned it was sort of in financial difficulties, and there was a big mortgage on the house and so John bought it from him um, and of course sold it when he left and made a big profit too <laughs> um, quite incidentally he didn't intend to invest in this but he had this enormous estate which moved which went much higher up uh, above the screen here and there they lived for four years and John observed the southern hemisphere now of course he made a lot of drawings of uh, the Felthausen estate by the way, I should have said a little earlier, those early drawings I showed you of, of uh, his grand tours, um, there are, oh, something like 500 drawings that he made on those three trips. Um, they are currently, or they're now permanently, in the Getty Museum in California. Um, I saw them before the John Paul Getty Museum bought them. They were in Baltimore, and that's how I got access to them and looked at a lot of them through magnifying glass um, and strangely they were bought by a rock star whose name I can't remember as an investment in the Sotheby's sale of 1959 and when they were sold maybe 12, 15 years ago to the Getty Museum the rock star made a big, big profit it was a good investment so all of the Grand Tour and English drawings are there in the Getty Museum um, but um, I will tell you where the other ones that I'm going to talk about in a minute uh, are also there Uh, So John made a lot of drawings of this estate from different directions. I'll show you just a very few pictures. Um, And uh, he also carried his camera lucida around uh, beyond this area out into the mountains. Um, And uh, I haven't got many of those to show you. But let me just show you a few pictures. Now, this is a different style of drawing. It's still using a camera lucida. But here, John, who is drawing the manor house... Uh, which dates to about 1790, um, and he's drawing it in 1830s. Um, he is not using a pencil and charcoal here. He's using Indian ink diluted to different dilutions to get greys and, um, and blacks of different types. Um, and he did a, a, a few, maybe 20 such pictures, after he arrived at the Cape. 
I can't find any evidence that he ever used this technique before, and I don't know why he used it, um, because it's not very effective. It doesn't have the fine detail that you'll see in the next pictures where he went back to using a pencil. And we don't know why, um, why he uh, used that technique, but he, clearly he was dissatisfied with it after a while. So that's the manor house in which he lived. Um, unfortunately, the one direct view of the manor house, which is listed in his catalogue of Cape drawings, that is lost. We don't know where it is. This is a photograph of that same house taken towards the end of the 19th century. So about 60 years after the Herschels lived in that house, it still looked more or less the same. That's much later on. Here's a side... Oh, here is the orchard uh, with, with the side of Table Mountain behind um, and the telescope erected in the, in the orchard and the other small telescope over here on the side. Um, that was used as the frontispiece of his book that he finally published, uh, giving all the results of the observations, which I'll come to shortly. Now, he did make many drawings. Here's the side of the house. Um, again, this is a wash drawing, not a pencil drawing. This is the side of the, the, uh, the house. The estate was called Felthausen. Uh, in the original Dutch, it had been Felthausen, but he Germanified it to Felthausen. Uh, and that's how he knew it, uh, what, what he called it during the time there. So th there, the, this is one of the two big oak trees you saw f face on in the previous photograph. Um, a nice, comfortable, typical Cape Dutch house from the end of the 18th century. Now, this is an example of John Herschel at his best of, as I say, photographic detail. This is the side of the house. He's looking down one of the driveways... Um, these are rows of oak trees. The telescope was just here off the, uh, off the edge here in the orchard. And the detail in here is breathtaking. If you look through, a, as I say, a magnifying glass, I find I can actually go and live in that scene. It's just like you're actually in there. And I have two or three such pictures. Now here, again, typical John Herschel. He's looking out through a window now, and he's left the foreground unfinished, uncluttered. Um, but I've managed to identify the nature of the curtains and the, well, the chairs. These chairs were taken out from England. They were not Cape chairs. But that, in the original, looks like almost a photograph hanging on the wall. It is so detailed. This is uh, Devil's Peak at the background here. It's strictly not a part of Table Mountain. It's, a, it's a, a, an offset from it. And similarly, looking at right angles to this, down the, uh, the other... Um, window, we were looking out that window, now we're looking down here, is one of the other um, driveways with overarching umbrella pines, um, strictly they're called stone pines, uh, with the parterre garden in the front here, this is the main drive coming up to the house, and another picture drawn from outside uh, with even more detail, and uh, my botanist friend and co-author, who I'll come to in a moment, can identify all the plants in here uh, from the textures. John was so good at creating texture in plants that uh, um, you, can, you can simply say what they are. Yeah, this is the gardener's lodge in the estate. John took out two uh, male assistants. One was an engineer, mechanic to help maintain the telescope. The other was his personal uh, batman, so to speak. Um, who then uh, looked after the gardens and I think lived uh, in, that, in that cottage. 
Uh, I should say that by the time the Herschels arrived there, they'd already had three children. Um, So John took his wife and three young children off to the Cape. This caused astonishment in England at the time. There were comments in the newspapers about this being rather foolhardy. The equivalent would be uh, an astronaut going to the moon these days and taking the wife and kids along. Um, It was looked on as dangerous. You had a voyage of a minimum of two months. It could take three and a half months if the wind wasn't favourable. People died. Ships went down. You got scurvy if if you lasted too long on board the ship. It was looked on as very foolish. Uh, In fact, apart from the fact that Margaret was seasick most of the time, they had a very good voyage. So John and three children arrive. um, And Margaret, for the four years she was there, was pregnant two-thirds of the time. They had another three children in the four years. Uh, and she ran the house and a retinue of about 12 or 15 uh, um, um, servants, you know, everything from um, nurses and uh, um, domestic servants and the, the, the cow, uh, the person who looked after the cow and whatever. Margaret entirely looked after the household. Um, extraordinary. And yet she found time to teach her children French and English and teach them how to paint and the piano and whatever. She kept that largely to herself. She wanted to do that with the children. So they went with three children, came back with six, and had another six later. Um, I'm rather fond of this particular picture. This really isn't finished. Um, But what John has done here is to put details into those things which were closest to his heart. In the distance, the manor house is fairly detailed, but the three of the four children, there were four by now, three of the children are here, and each one, again, if you look at them through a magnifying glass, I find similarities in many of these um, uh, figures to to Leonardo, strangely. Um, I may be overdoing it a bit, but when you look at them individually, they are really superb, and they're so um, full of human life, so to speak. And the three kids, I think, are just picking up... um, Pine cones. John was great on uh, conservation. He, he, he um, collected hundred weights of pine seeds and sowed them all around, and those pines grew for the next 150 years. I don't think there are any left now, except I found one that's not far from here uh, that was recently cut down, and I think it may be as old as, as, as John Herschel. It um, may well have been planted in the 1830s. Right. Um, this is John Herschel's tour de force. This is the side of Table Mountain. Table Mountain actually runs into the picture and the normal straight-edged tabletop that you see in in photographs is seen from right angles, the other side. This is the eastern buttress, as we call it now. He simply called it Table Mountain. Um, And this is an amazingly detailed photographic portrait. Um, Again, the front is left unfinished. And he actually says about it here um, something like a, a, a... a careful and something portrait. Portrait at that time meant not simply of people, but of objects. And the fact that he says that it's a particularly careful portrait, and he put a lot of effort into that, this is a scientific uh, drawing. It's made for scientific purposes, I think. He doesn't say it, but um, he was doing the same thing with drawings of nebulae in the sky, which we will see in a moment. What he's doing here is depicting the side of Table Mountain in such detail and accuracy that people like me, and that's the view I have from my flat in Cape Town, um, could look at it and say, oh, look, 
this buttress has fallen down in the next 150 years or the next 1,000 years or however it took. I think this is done as, uh, for a scientific purpose so that posterity could look at the, the speed of the rate of erosion of mountains. Nobody knew that. Oddly, this is done only one year before photography was invented. I'll come back to that at the end of my talk. Photography was invented the year after this, and so this kind of incredibly detailed portrait um, wasn't required anymore. You could take a photograph. Um, I've got just one or two other pictures. He went up Table Mountain, um, and uh, this is a drawing from the, the gorge that cuts across Table Mountain, which is the easy way up. It's easy if you don't mind climbing 1,500 feet more or less vertically, but it comes out at the top here, um, and I have sat on the rock that John Herschel sat on to make that drawing. I've had great fun going to the places that, uh, that he, uh, he went to. Um, and maybe I should say at this point um, that I have a book that I had hoped to have in my hand right now, but the publisher has, the last three or four years has made a a great effort at disappointing me over and over again. I think it's actually printed. It's advertised now by every bookseller in the world, but I've not seen the book. Um, but it contains all of these pictures, all of the Cape pictures. The book is called Cape Landscapes, which is John Herschel's title in the catalogue he made of all of his drawings. He had a separate section called Cape Landscapes with all these in. Now, these drawings are in the South African National Library in Cape Town. They were donated to the library in 1959 by the Herschel family when they had the big Sotheby's sale. They donated huge amounts of Herschel material to various societies, Royal Society, Royal Astronomical Society. A lot was bought by very rich institutions like the University of Texas um, and they generously gave almost all of the Cape drawings to the National Library in Cape Town. And I had, for a long time, wanted to publish these. No publisher would take them on in the early days. You can't reproduce them photographically. These slides do not do justice to the originals. John Herschel's pencil is, gives such a big dynamic range from black to very faint grey. You cannot reproduce them photographically. Photographic emulsions don't do that. But nowadays what you can do is to scan in high resolution in colour and print in black and white. And that gives you the full dynamic range. Um, and so the book that's coming out uh, will, will be very beautiful because the pictures are as good and in some cases slightly better than, than the ones that are in the library. Um, and I wished I'd had a copy here to show you. Um, I'll skip that one. That's just a bit of local foliage uh, showing what the Cape Peninsula used to look like. That's a built-up area now. Um, one of the things that John did, and I'm not going to show you this in particular, but... One of the wonderful things that he did, again, it's, the, I think, the mind of the scientist, partly. He did panoramas, several of them, 360 degrees, where he simply chopped the 360 degrees into six 60-degree bits and did a drawing all the way around. And so if you put them all together, you get a beautiful panoramic view of what the Cape Peninsula looked like at that time. This is part of one he did from the roof of the observatory. This is the flat roof of the observatory, and he's looking at Devil's Peak. Here's Table Mountain hidden largely behind, and he's looking off towards local farms and windmills. Um, no other artist of that era did panoramas, and there are about six of them. Uh, I will show you one. Oh, maybe it's even next. Yes. 
This is one that, um, that he did. This is just two of four pieces that he did down near the bottom of the Cape Peninsula in what's called Cape Point, uh, which is not the southernmost tip of Africa, which most people seem to think it is, but it's not. Um, this is looking back north, and this is look, looking more or less uh, west. And there are two other frames. Again, the detail is superb. My botanist friends can identify what kind of uh, protea that is and so on. Now, it, I, as I say, I've had great fun uh, going around finding where did John make these pictures from. Uh, and this is up on the top of a hill. And it took me a couple of hours to scramble up there. He went up on horseback, which is cheating. Um, but I went and scrambled up there and eventually found exactly where he sat, on a very appropriate rock, comfortable, protected from the wind by a nearby rock and whatever. Um, and for the book that I've just mentioned to you, I um, had a professional photographer who went there, and the modern equivalent of that in black and white photography is this. Uh, and the, uh, the photographer was, well, he didn't sit, he put his tripod on the seat that John had, had sat on. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, you can make detailed connections between the rocks. There's actually more vegetation here now than there was in John's time. So these rocks don't show up all that well. But just to give you an example, I mean, what one can do uh, with uh, following John around. Now, so that's that side of things. John did all these landscape drawings. Hardly any of them have got people in. John Herschel was a very shy, reticent kind of character um, who would not like to have been seen making drawings in public. So he didn't do any drawings in Cape Town, no village, no anything. He was out in the countryside quietly making his drawings on his own. So all those landscapes tend to be of, of literally of landscapes. A few, as you've seen, like the one of his children, do have some people in, but not usually strangers. But one other thing that he did and his wife participated in, when they arrived in Cape Town in January 1834, which is midsummer, and the flowers are not at their best then, they were stunned by the beauty of the flowers at the Cape. Uh, they're even more beautiful in September, August, September, October, in springtime. But they are good all the year round. And I might just explain that one reason for that is that, well, my botanist friends talk about the U UK, the British flora, um, as, as being an impoverished flora. Um, and it's actually purely... Uh, the result of the fact that 10,000 years ago, the whole of northern Europe and Britain was scraped clean by ice. And there were no plants left when the ice retreated. So all of the indigenous flowers, trees here in Britain and all of northern Europe have come back in from Mediterranean sources since seven, 8,000 years ago. And all the rest of the plants that, that are so rich here in Britain were collected in the 18th century, 17th, 18th, 19th century. People like Tradescant. Um, so the richness of flora here is, is not due to the indigenous um, richness. It's, it's the work of collectors. Whereas at the Cape, in the Cape Peninsula, we haven't had any ice in the last 250 million years. So the roots of the plants literally, genetically, go back 250 million years. And the bit of the Cape Peninsula, or the bit of the Cape where I live in, is one of the, I forget how many, seven floral kingdoms of the world, of which North America is one, South America is one, whole of Europe is one. We have a little one that's about, I suppose, 200 miles by 200 miles, and it's the richest of all of them because it hasn't suffered that deprivation. I think in Britain there's one indigenous heather, 
Mon Erica. I think we have 650 on the side of Table Mountain. Pelagoniums, geraniums, we've got, I think, 450 species. Um, it's amazingly rich. And they flower all the year round. So the Herschels were stunned by the beauty of Cape flowers when they got there, even though they got there at the wrong season. And they quickly decided that, 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 I think for Margaret's sake, she wanted some relaxation away from running this almost hotel of, of, of servants and kids. And uh, she clearly had been trained when she was young as a girl to do presumably crochet and maybe tapestry and knitting and singing and piano playing, all the things that a, a good young girl would be taught. And painting was one of them. But as I said, when on honeymoon, she doesn't seem to have ever thought of doing any artwork. But they get to the Cape and they realise here is a possible um, way of, of her getting some relaxation. So what happened then was John drew the outline of flowers, and that's what this is, very faintly in pencil, and Margaret painted it in. And you can watch her development as an artist over the first six months. Her initial attempts are really rather flat, not very good, but quickly she learned, and partly because she, they employed an art master, one of two artists who'd been on one of the expeditions into deepest, darkest Africa, um, and, uh, and had been used for, for, for doing zoological and botanical work, uh, a young man, and, and he taught her. He came once a week on a Tuesday on horseback, and they paid him, um, and uh, he quickly instructed her, showed her how to do artwork. So it so happens there were one or two other artists around who also helped her. And in, within six months, she became a very, very significant artist. Uh, now, as of about six years ago, um, the, the Herschel descendants, John Herschel Shawlan, um, sold those Cape flower drawings, which were still in the family, sold them to Harry Oppenheimer in South Africa, who commissioned my botanist friend and me to produce the book about them. So that is several years ago. And I think that's probably what I may have talked a bit about when I was last here, but I can't remember. So I'm not going to show you much of that. But that's what John would have contributed. That probably took him all of ten minutes. He worked at a furious pace. And that's what Margaret did with such a picture. Her artwork is superlative after the first six months. Um, there are about 120 of these drawings and they were given to the Cape, sorry, they were not given to the Cape um, Library when the landscape ones were. These remained in the, in the Herschel family uh, and were sold to Mr Oppenheimer who took them to South Africa um, about whatever it was, seven or eight years ago. So I won't show you more than that one but there are 110, 120 of this quality. Um, John, of course, was in general much too busy doing astronomy to do other than the quick outlines, but even he was charmed by the um, Cape flowers, and this is John Herschel on his own. Uh, it's a protea, and it, it... Well, let me go back to the previous one. I should have thought about that. The bottom of the previous one is signed, JFWH, John Frederick William Herschel, Delin, he was the delineator, in other words, he drew it, Cam Look, Camera lucida. He drew the outline with the camera lucida. And over here it says MBH, Margaret Brody Herschel, pinks it. Or pinks, it's short for pinks it. She coloured it. And of course, these are really her work. I mean, the outlines are accurate because John gave her the outlines. But the artistry is Margaret. And they're, they're very beautiful. But this next one is the only one that simply says 
JFWH, WAF Joe Herschel, um, Delin Kamluk Ekpinks. He did the whole thing, painted it as well. Um, I think he was just too busy uh, otherwise, but it's not a bad portrait of a protea. It's even got the wormholes in the, in the leaves up here. It's been bitten into, insect uh, in, yeah, holes in it. Again, the eye of the scientist being as accurate as possible. Um, so with that um, book that was, we called Flora Hersheliana, which had all the watercolours in, the flowers, and then with my new book, um, it, um, we've covered more or less everything. Now, finish off, I want to go back to the real reason that John was at the Cape. Um, it was to observe the sky. And he spent the four years um, working on it. Um, they arrived back in England in uh, 1838, just a couple of months before Queen Victoria's coronation in June 1838. And at that, John, who had already been made Sir John with a knight uh, of the Hanoverian order, the same as his father had got, George III had created John uh, a knight, but Queen Victoria, as part of the coronation celebrations, made him a baronet. So here he is, Sir John F.W. Herschel, baronet, K.H., and this always amuses me because he's got a whole list of degrees and then he's got all of his uh, associations that he belonged to, the foreign associations. And at some point he got tired of writing them down and he says, etc., etc., etc. At last there's a small sign of modesty coming in. But he was the most modest person. Um, I mean, I'll give you one example. John Herschel uh, was at the Cape in the 1830s when... Darwin and Fitzroy on the Beagle were going around the world. When they arrived in Cape Town, Herschel invited Captain Fitzroy to dinner. And uh, whether he knew Darwin was along with him, I don't think he could have known Darwin, who was a young man when he went on the voyage. But anyway, Darwin went and dined with Herschel. And there are several aspects to that dinner, that meeting, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. Darwin wrote several letters back home, uh, to, to Cambridge at least, about the visit. One of the things he said was, Sir John Herschel said very little, but everything he said was important. And it's really possibly significant that John Herschel was thinking in 1837 at this time about evolution. Evolution not just in the sky, but he had been collecting bulbs, these Cape bulbs. He had a collection of 700 species in his garden. Tremendously impressed Darwin. And John brought them all back to England later, transferred them and got them growing in Kent. Um, and it's possible that Darwin got some first hints about thinking about evolution from Herschel. And it was a huge disappointment many years later when Darwin published his book and Herschel gave it a very bad review. Uh, he, he did not like the idea of random you know, variation and chance, the law of higgledy-piggledy as he or somebody else talked about um, but another thing and this is just to describe Herschel's character uh, in, in as vivid words as you can imagine they come from Charles Darwin writing back to Sidgwick the geologist in Cambridge and referring to Lady um, Catherine Bell she was the wife of the colonial secretary and Darwin says Lady Catherine Bell says that when Sir John Herschel comes in into a room he does so as though he knows his hands are dirty, and he knows that his wife knows his hands are dirty. 
Uh, you can read into that what you like, but it, uh, <laughs> whether he was under the, under the thumb of his wife or not, who was 20 years younger, but um, I don't know. But the point is, it does describe his reticent character. He had a great fear of public speaking until quite late in life. Um, and for such a brilliant all-rounder, it's an unusual property to have. Okay, let me just now go on. Um, well, let me go back to that for a moment. So eventually in 1847... This is nine years after he arrived back in, in Britain. He got the final book. And this is perhaps one of the... Well, it is one of the most extraordinary books in the history of astronomy. John had done all that work, his great thick book and all the work, on his own. William had at least the assistance of Caroline, his sister, who wrote down all the observations, who did most of the work of calculation and so on. John had to do everything himself. That's partly the reason it took nine years. The other reason is photographic, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, he, was, he was diverted by many other things. But that book, which is really the foundation of modern astronomy in the Southern Hemisphere, it had, for instance, a complete list of nebulae and clusters that John had discovered, 2,200 of them, I think. It's the founding catalogue of interesting objects in the Southern Hemisphere. He found several thousand double stars not previously known. He catalogued the objects in the large Magellanic cloud, which is the nearest galaxy to us, and was astonished by what he found. He did it the hard way. He measured with that small telescope positions of stars accurately, and then he could look at those stars through his big telescope and sketch in all the details using the stars as a framework, a reference framework. Um, he plotted them all on a map, which I haven't, won't show you. Um, but... Here is an example of his artistry. Now, here again, he was actually copying William. William was interested in what is the direction of evolution, what is the direction that stars move in. There is gas there, though they didn't actually know it was gas necessarily. Um, and are stars forming from gas or are stars blowing off gas? What is, what, which direction does the star movement go? Now, I'm cheated here a bit because in the original book, the results... This is printed the other way around. I've reversed it black on white. The engraver couldn't do that in 1847, but this is what it would have looked like to John through the telescope. So I'm showing you a negative. And in this case, there has been a change. In this case, this star, which is Eta Carini, was quite bright, naked-eye star in John's time. It's faded now, way beyond naked-eye brightness. And all this brightly lit, illuminated gas here has faded away and you don't see this thing which he called the Keyhole Nebula. It, it's, a, it's a patch of dust that's absorbing light from behind. It doesn't look like that anymore. In this case, you can see something has changed. Um, so, and that's the only case uh, where you can say that. Uh, he made many drawings using his superlative skill in art. Here's a star cluster that he plotted, and here is another different nebula that he drew. Again, I've reversed them left uh, no, black for white. This is the, the um, nebula in the Orion Nebula, in Orion's uh, belt, and this was by far the finest drawing of its time. Um, again, not really needed because nothing has changed uh, in the 150 years or so. Um, one thing that happened, though, was that Halley's Comet was around in 1836, 1837. John was there to observe it, these are some of the drawings he made um, of Halley's Comet. 
Um, and I won't go into the technical details, but when he produced that book, he, had, he made one or two statements about comets that were 100, and, were 100 years in advance of their time. Um, I, I won't go into the technical details. He didn't have the ability quite to follow the argument to the end, which you could do in 1950 when it was looked on again. Um, by the way, I had a wonderful experience in 1986 where I was lecturing on Halley's Comet all over South Africa and in every audience there would be some white-haired people that would stand up and say, I saw Halley's Comet in 1910. Um, I got used to that. And of course, you know, they had. That's young children. Uh, but in one place I had a remarkable uh, statement because I'd shown this picture, Herschel's drawings of 1836, and a very elderly lady stood up and said that she'd seen it in, 18, in 1910. And before I could say yes, you know, I'm very glad to hear that, she said, and staying with us at the time was a lady who had seen it in 1836, just like you've drawn it here. Okay. So after my talk, I went and found her and said, well, when Hellis Comet comes around in a few more months, this was in advance, um, find a young girl from a family that's known for its longevity, tell her that story, and in another 75 years' time, maybe the story will continue. I would think she did. She was, she was very bright and very keen on that. Okay, all good things come to an end. Here, John is packing up his telescope. The, the mirror has been taken out and put in its tin case um, to go off to the ship, uh, and he's, he's just beginning to dismantle the telescope. This is in uh, February 1838. They sailed in, eight, in April 1838, packed everything up and, and went off. Um, what is left behind in Cape Town? Well, three years after the Herschels had left, um, a commemorative obelisk was erected there, subscribed to by friends of the Herschels, who just loved them in Cape Town. And they clubbed together, got money, and um, had a... Uh, granite obelisk built or mined quarried from Craigleith Quarry which is near Edinburgh and had it shipped out um, and there it was and there it is to this day uh, I live a few hundred yards away from it um, and it's got a hollow base now they never went back to South Africa so they didn't see the Herschel uh, monument the Herschel obelisk but what they did have because this is, was in the possession of the Herschels was this illustration. This was done by a young man at the observatory, the Royal Observatory, who was a good artist. And the original of this is very small. These are little vignettes. These are miniatures. Uh, and this shows the telescope as it was with the, second, with the other telescope next to it. That's how it was. This shows what it looked like after the Herschels had left and abandoned the site, sold the site. They didn't sell a circular patch of, of land 69 feet diameter, goodness knows why 69 feet, which they surrounded by trees and in the middle is a cylinder of granite uh, which says on the top JFWH and around the side it says 1838 which is when they left and that is in the centre of rotation of the telescope. It marks precisely where the telescope was and why did they, John do that? Well, he, had, he and McClear, the director of the observatory, had done a very careful land survey from the telescope to the observatory, and so this position here was the second best-known latitude and longitude geographical position in the whole colony. And John left it there for land surveyors to be able to get access to uh, when they were doing their maps. And so this 
obelisk is hollow at the base and it has a hole in one side so you can stand here and see that cylinder to this day. So as I say, the Herschels didn't see that, but that, that's the uh, illustration was given to them. And the final page, this isn't quite the final slide, but the final page of John's great book has this lithograph of the obelisk and it has the most wonderful final sentences, I think, because this is a work of nine years' work of um, huge amount of effort on John's part and at last he can write finis at the end here. And the last um, uh, bit he says that the record of its site, that's the telescope site, is preserved on the spot by a granite column erected after our departure by the kindness of friends to whom, as to the locality itself and to the colony, every member of my family had become and will remain attached by a thousand pleasing and great, grateful recollections of years spent in agreeable society, cheerful occupation and unalloyed happiness. Um, and for many years after that, John would write back to MacLear saying how much he wished he could come back to good old Table Mountain, but they never did. Now, that's sort of the end, but I want to just say a few more words. What, is, what remains of the 20-foot telescope and what remains in South Africa of the Herschels? Um, this is the tube of the telescope that was on display at the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich. Uh, but currently it's not. It's at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. They have a, a long-term display of what they considered to be the five most important telescopes in the history of astronomy. They have a, a model of Galileo's telescope. They have this tube, as used by William and John. They have, I think, a mock-up of the 200-inch Palomar telescope. They have um, a, a full-size version of the Hubble Space Telescope and one other, and I can't remember what the other one is. It may be Lord Ross's 60-inch, 72-inch te uh, mirror. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is considered to be, in the hands of William and John Herschel, um, a telescope of... of, of Top five. Um, the three mirrors still exist. Two of them are at Greenwich, or except they are also in the Smithsonian at the moment. And this one we have in Cape Town, and I've never discovered really how we kept it. It was sent out in 1904 to the museum, and I don't know why, but 70 years after 1834, maybe. But it never went back. And so this mirror we have in our strong room in the, in the museum. And I have had it out on display but these are metal mirrors, they're speculum, they're terribly, um, uh, they're, they're prone to fracture. The, the speculum metal crystallizes with age and, and a, a sudden thermal shock or a, or a mechanical shock can smash it. So we have to treat it with great care. Um, John himself, when he got back to England, as I say, in 1838, in 1839, January, he was walking down the Strand in London and somebody came up to him and said, have you heard what's been announced in Paris? Um, Daguerre has announced the invention of what we would call photography. And John heard that. Now, he himself had not thought of doing photography. Why? Because he was so good at art. At art. His acquaintance, William Henry Fox Talbot, down near here, had been doing experimenting with photography for years because he wasn't a good artist and was frustrated and couldn't use the camera lucifer. So he was motivated to fix, by chemical means, pictures as seen in a camera obscura. He independently invented photography. 
De Geur had done it for different reasons, but John Herschel, hearing that De Geur had invented something that De Geur, I forget what he actually called them, they were later called De Geurotypes, and they were on metal plates. With that knowledge, he went back to Slough, and within a week he had invented five different chemical techniques for doing photography, one of which he called the cyanotype, because it used potassium, I forget whether it's... Um, what, what, what um, ferricyanide or ferrocyanide. One is poisonous, one's not. It would be the non-poisonous one. One of those he called cyanotype, and it was what became the blueprint process, which was only displaced by Xerox about 30 years ago. If John had patented that, he would have been a millionaire, a billionaire. He also invented hypo for fixing photographs because in the days when he was a chemist, back in Cambridge as a fellow of St. John's, he had discovered that what was called hyposulfate of sodium, which is really th- the thiosulfate, but he had discovered that dissolves silver salts. It was one of his major discoveries. And so he realised that the way to fix a photograph is to wash out all the unexposed silver salts, and he did that. He actually did it to one of Fox Talbot's uh, unfixed photographs. If he'd patented that, he would have made himself rich. But the Analytical Society right back in Cambridge as undergraduates, they vowed among themselves never to profit from any of their own inventions. They vowed they would leave the world a better state than they had uh, found it in and not to make profit. None of them did. So John you know, could have been very rich. Um, I'll just finish off now. John never used photography for doing landscape work. He was an inventor. He developed pun, I suppose, photography. By the way, the word photography comes from John Herschel. Uh, They were called um, photogenic drawings at one time, or Torbert types for for Fox Torbert's thing. Herschel said, this is a silly kind of word, let's call it photograph. And so photography comes from him. Uh, Positive and negative uh, in photography comes from John Herschel. He was the first to do photography on transparent glass, and so making negatives that he could make an infinite number of positives from and even the word snapshot uh, for a quick photograph. And he was a snapshot on horseback with a rifle, uh, one of his other many attributes. Um, So photography he was involved in, but never actually used practically. Um, Oh, sorry, this this is an example done in 1849, so 11 years after he got back to England. A beautiful drawing. My botanist friend says he can name these species of trees simply by looking at the foliage, the structure, the feeling that Herschel put into them. John ended up with a very, very large portfolio. This is the final one that he did, Stonehenge, done in 1860. can't quite read that, two, one or something, but about ten years before he died. That's his final effort. It's number 757. It's the largest portfolio of camera lucid drawings that any artist ever did. And there were several uh, who created a lot. Um, And uh, as I say, the great majority are in California now and and not easily accessible, unfortunately. Now, at the end of his life, John got old, as as we we all hope to. Um, One of the things that made him age faster than he would otherwise have done, or there were two things. One was he was an ill man, a sick man. He suffered terribly from... um, rheumatoid arthritis, we think it was. Even at the Cape, with a nice climate, he complained about rheumatism. Um, 
And the other thing which nearly killed him was he became master of the mint in the early 1850s. Now, this is very odd. He never had a paid job in his life. He didn't need to. His mother left him a lot of money. His father left him a lot of money. He was independent. But the government asked him to become master of the mint. Now, why did they do that? For the same reason they asked Isaac Newton to become master of the mint. In both eras, um, one in the uh, sort of early 1700s, um, this time in the mid-19th century, in both times, the, the government was recalling all the gold coins, all the sovereigns, which had been clipped and filed and, you know, and were only half the size and weight they should be. Now, when you recoin the realm like that, there is a real chance that a lot of these gold coins being brought in are going to disappear somewhere or other. So who do you find to oversee the recoining of the realm? Who can you trust? Well, obviously not politicians, lawyers, professors, men of the church, but you can trust an astronomer. And that's why they asked Isaac Newton, who had the reputation and the, you know, the, the, the good reputation, and John Herschel. I mean, I happen to know that John Herschel had to post a security of £10,000 in case he skipped off to France with his pockets full of sovereigns. He didn't actually pay any money at all, but a number of his senior colleagues um, guaranteed the £10,000 if he was to disappear. So he was master of the mint. He hated it. He had to live in London away from the family, and he was a very good family man. Um, and it broke him mentally, and he had a, just about a total mental breakdown and resigned. During his um, mastership, though, he introduced Britain's first decimal coin. He introduced the old florin, the two-shilling piece, a tenth of a pound. It's one of the things he did. He was for decimalisation, but he was totally against the metric system for good reasons. I am too, but that's another reason. Um, so eventually he got quite old. And the last two pictures I have of him are, within a couple of years of his death, photographs done by the most creative, probably the finest photographic portraitist of the time, Julia Margaret Cameron. And strangely, she had met Herschel at the Cape before she was married. She was Julia Margaret something else, I forgot what, uh, in the 1830s. And I think it's pretty obvious that she'd fallen in love with John in a big way. Um, and and, and the, she wrote letters to him that were clearly designed you know, or full of admiration, let's put it that way. Um, and uh, the, the two pictures, she did several, but uh, including of him as Master of the Mint. But the two I'll end up with is an odd one. Oh, sorry, no, this is all right. This is John looking haggard, uh, having broken down after the mastership of the mint and being racked with pain in his older life and it really did age him more quickly than he might otherwise have done. And the other one, and that's a, that's a very striking portrait and fairly normal for a, uh, for a Julia Margaret Cameron. The next one, the final one, is much more her style. Um, portrait of him as sort of in a classical pose with a quill pen, which I doubt he'd ever used. Um, and as you can see, he really was very ancient uh, in his last days. Now, he died in 1871, so he was 79 years old, just about, which is not a bad age for Victorian times. And the nation the, uh, showed their reverence and respect for him. He is buried in Westminster Abbey next to Isaac Newton. 